I invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Micah. Let's pray together. Father, now, as always, we need you. We have been worshiping you through song and prayer and giving and fellowship. We've been worshiping you these ways. We pray as we look at your word that we would worship you in your word. We need this and we want this. Direct our attention to your goodness, even in the face of difficulty. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A terminal diagnosis. You find out that you have a disease that is incurable. No surgical intervention. No medicine that will bring it to remission. No special diet or exercise can correct it. You've received a diagnosis that is terminal or incurable. This morning, as we consider in the book of Micah, this passage, God diagnoses Israel with a terminal disease. He says her wound is incurable. The book of Micah contains three oracles. An oracle is simply a proclamation of either blessing, instruction, or judgment. Three oracles. The first oracle, which is our consideration this morning, consists of chapters 1 and 2. And this first oracle is a declaration of judgment against Israel and Judah. And as we read in our responsive reading earlier, God tells us that Israel's wound is incurable. Take a look at verse 9. He says, For her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. And so we've, we've got some serious problems. Uh, to break this oracle down into its parts, just briefly, because we don't have a lot of time. In verse 2, we have what I would call, listen up. Listen up, in verse 2. He says, Hear, all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. Now this is not someone's opinion. This isn't Micah's opinion. This isn't just a prophet that's a rogue prophet saying, hey, I I have a a, a proclamation I want to make. We have here at the beginning, you had better listen. This is a message from God. God is speaking from his holy temple. Listen up. In verses 3 through 7, we have this concept. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Look at verses 3 and following. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. How devastating will this be? Well, the mountains will melt under Him. And the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. In other words, when He comes this way in judgment, nothing can deter Him. This is pretty significant. This is pretty Harsh. This is pretty strong. Verse 5, he tells us why. This is the reason for judgment. He says, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? We'll get into this just briefly in, in a few minutes. But both the... Ten northern tribes of Israel and the southern two tribes of Israel have both gone, to use a biblical phrase, a whoring after other gods. They've played the prostitute. 
instead of receiving their joy and rejoicing and their blessing from the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. I said that in backwards order, you notice that. Instead of receiving their blessing from him, they sought to receive blessing from the gods of the nations, who, as we all know, are no gods at all. You thought that she gave you, or he gave you, or they gave you your wine and your flax. You thought your oil came from them. They went worshiping other gods. This is the sin of Israel. This is the sin of Judah. They had chosen another god. So we wonder why there might be judgment The results of this judgment are listed in verses 6 and 7. It says, Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. Well, it's imagery, but the imagery is pretty precise, and he's telling us, you, you have received benefit from these other nations, and then you started to follow these other nations. Guess what? Because of your worship of the gods of these nations, I'm going to take all these things that you've started to re- rejoice around, and I'm going to take them, and they'll go back to those nations. The pay of a harlot. The results of judgment will not be pretty. And so we have this next phase of this oracle, and that is Micah's distress. He's, he's upset about this. It says in verse 8, Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. Now I found, ready, I found some sound of a howling jackal. So I'm going to try this. Hopefully it'll come through the microphone well. Are you ready for this? Doesn't that sound pathetic? That's just, that's just not really pretty. What's the idea? Job said the same thing, by the way. The idea is this wailing that is, it just sounds grotesque. Micah is telling you, as he's surveying this, as he's hearing this from the Lord, as he's preaching this message, it's not one he takes lightly. Because when, when God says he's going to come in judgment, friends, he doesn't, he doesn't mess around. This is serious business. He's in distress. Look at verse 9. We've read it already, but we'll read it again. For her wounds, meaning Israel's, her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. So we've got this, this mourning that's going on in Micah's heart. He's distressed over this judgment. And then in verses 10 through 16, really it's a poetic expression regarding judgment. We're not going to read it right now. I'm going to give you a little, a little statement later that will try to help tie that all together because it's, it's really poetic. It's just he's, he's using these expressions and he's really using a bunch of puns. He's a punny guy, this Micah. He's using a bunch of puns to really caused the people of Judah, the southern two tribes, because the sin of Israel has come to the gate of his people, he's going to let them know, listen, you would like to be rejoicing, but uh, it's not going to work out. So he writes this in very poetic fashion. 
Then in chapter 2, he gives us the basis for the judgment. We're gonna, we'll look at it later. Don't, you don't need to turn there right now. Verses 1 through 5 gives us the basis for the judgment. Verses 6 through 11, we're going to consider next week. We're going to call that the po- prophetic condition. The prophetic condition. This is what you're willing to hear. You, you hear someone talk about beer and wine and, and really good, happy things. But you don't want to hear about the heavy stuff. We're going to talk about that next week. But he concludes, as always, with a statement of hope. A statement of hope. That's in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So this is the, the big overview of the oracle. It sounds heavy, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound heavy? It feels a little morbid, discouraging, yea, even depressing. So as we consider it, we need to note a few things, some truths about judgment before we begin or as we're beginning. First of all, remember this. God always, God always holds in perfect balance in perfect harmony, his perfections. God holds all of his perfections in perfect harmony. So in other words, when we see here in a passage like Micah chapter 1 and 2, this heaviness of judgment based upon his holiness and a violation of his righteousness, we know at the very same time he holds in perfect harmony his mercy, his grace, his love, his long-suffering, his kindness, his goodness, his truth, and his faithfulness. Never forget this. God never disassociates himself from part of his being so he can operate in another part of his being. He holds them in perfect harmony. Secondly, sin warrants judgment. Sin warrants judgment. Thirdly, and very importantly, God's judgment is not based upon a whim. You've been in the position of authority before in some facet or another. And you have probably, on one occasion or another, reacted to something, and you made a judgment. It was a flash judgment about something, and you, maybe you look back on that flash judgment, and you think, oh, little overkill. Maybe there was a little too much abstraction in what I'm judging here. Maybe it wasn't enough clarity before I judged, and so we're, we're judging on a whim. We think, this doesn't look right, this doesn't smell right, this doesn't sound right. Judgment. <laughs> Never God. He doesn't react. You'll never catch God by surprise. He'll never think, oh, I can't believe you, of all people, did that. He's never surprised. So he doesn't judge on a whim. He judges based upon what he's prescribed. Now hold your hand here because we're going to come back, and it's very important that you you come back here with me. But take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 8 for a moment. There are so many passages we could look at to, to really bring forth this point. But Deuteronomy 8 really serves as a, as a great lesson about why God is judging here. We could look at Deuteronomy 28, where he talks about the blessings and the cursings from covenant uh, faithfulness. If Israel would obey God's covenant, he would bless them. If Israel would disobey God's covenant, he would bring curses upon them. We, we know that in Deuteronomy 28. So that, that's common in our minds. In Deuteronomy 8, Really, just a different way of saying this. I think a very clear way of saying it. Beginning in verse 2. We're going to look at a number of passages through Deuteronomy 8 just for a moment. Verse 2. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you in all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Look down further at verse 11. 
Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful homes or houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Be careful, remember? Beware that you forget him. And then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be, listen, then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. Still feels heavy, doesn't it? Remember, please. Remember what God, from the beginning, has been seeking to accomplish in his people. God wants to dwell among his people as they exercise his dominion. God wants to dwell among his people as they dwell, exercise his dominion. To state it a little differently and more specifically, God's presence among his people was to result in the spread of his kingdom on the earth. God's presence among his people was to result in the spread of his kingdom on the earth. So here are these, these laws under Old Testament Israel, these laws under the Mosaic Covenant. And, and I, I want to dwell among my people. Remember the tabernacle. And I, and I made the tabernacle so I could dwell among you. And God made these laws so they'd be distinct from the rest of the world, but not so that they would just say, yeah, we're like this and you're like that. Nah, 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 nah. They wanted to show that there is a special God in Israel and he... He does special things. Come and see Him. Come and learn of Him. Come and and experience the blessing that comes from knowing God. They were to spread the light of God throughout all the earth. God wanted to exercise His dominion through Israel on the earth. But they forgot Him. Instead, the northern tribes of Israel accepted a substitute religion that was set up under Jeroboam. My favorite, the son of Nebath. What a nasty person he was. What did he do? Well, I'm going to set up a, a shrine up here in the north of Israel. And I'm going to set up a shrine down in the south of Israel so that the people don't say, hey, I want to go back to Jerusalem to where God's presence is. I, I, I want to make it actually convenient for them so they can worship where there is nearby. And, and, and instead of worshiping God, they can worship these things that represent God, a substitute religion. The southern tribes of Israel, Judah, under Ahaz, closed the temple and filled it with garbage. Is there anything significant about filling the place that's supposed to contain God's glory and God's presence and filling it with garbage? Any any significance to this? Yeah, I think it might be a little bit of an insult. The temple 
was to be where God met with his people. His presence was to be among them. The people forgot about God. They rejected his presence and worshipped other gods. Instead of offering the world God's light, they enhanced the world's darkness. This is called doing the very opposite of your call. I want you to look now at how this condition, spiritually, impacted their ethics. Ethics, you know, the things that they do, how they treat people. Take a look at chapter 2 of Micah. Micah chapter 2. This condition of forgetting God, rejecting his presence, and worshiping other gods has led to a, a demonstration of an ethic that, that was inconsistent with those that are to exercise God's dominion. Take a look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Woe to those who devise iniquity. So they're, they're, they're thinking, how can I plan this thing? He's going to tell us what kind of a plan it is. Woe to those who work out evil in their beds. So not only they are thinking about it during the day, they're writing up this scheme, they lay in their bed and they're like, yeah, this will really work. Yes. Yes, you know, you have some of the best thoughts that you have when you're lying in bed. You think, man, I wish I could write that down, but I'm too lazy to get out of bed. If I wrote it down, I'd have that thought. It would be excellent. But these aren't good thoughts that they're having. They're, they're evil intentions. At morning light, they practice it. What? Those things they've devised, those evil plans that they've meditated on their bed. Why are they able to do this? Because it's in the power of their hand. If you look in the context of what's going on in Israel and Judah at this time, the rich are taking advantage of the poor. And that's what Mike is going to turn to here in verse 2. He says, They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance or his children. What's happening here? These powerful people that have power over others are using that power to extract from others what is rightfully theirs. Any ethical problems going on when, when those that are rich are oppressing those who are less fortunate? I think there's a problem, isn't it? And I think we've seen that in every age, haven't we? But remember, who are we talking about here? We're talking about the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel is supposed to be those through whom God's presence is demonstrated and then that kind of truth of of how dominion was supposed to be exercised, God's dominion was supposed to be demonstrated through them, and they're doing the very opposite of this. What's happening? Why is God going to judge Israel and Judah? Well, we're seeing some of the, the elements of it. Back in chapter 1 and verse 5, it's for the transgression of Jacob, it's for the, the sins of the house of Israel, it's for the transgressions, uh, excuse me, it's, it's for the, the high places in Judah. You remember when we looked at Ahab, or excuse me, Ahaz, and what he had done in those southern tribes. Every high hill, what was going on in those high hills? Worshipping other gods, setting up altars in every high hill. Where? In Jerusalem. What's Jerusalem supposed to be? That's the city of God. We are, it's also called Zion in other places. It's, it's where God's visible presence was to be manifest through the tabernacle or the temple. Does God take that manifestation of his character and his presence seriously? Of course he does. And so we, we can see the, the problem that's going on. Israel's idolatry was the heart of her problem. We saw it in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. How bad was it? How bad was it? To what stage of, of difficulty spiritually had they come to? Look at verses 8 and 9 again. We've read it several times, trying to draw, drive a particular point home in our minds. 
Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wounds are incurable. Incurable. Israel's incurable wounds impacted Judah. It says at the end of the verse, For it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of my people. We're going to come back to this incurable wound again. Started there. Keep on hitting on it. We're going to come back there again. Because that's at the heart of this oracle. This incurable wound. This is why God is coming in judgment in Micah chapter 1. Because of this incurable wound. He starts to express this in verses 10 through 16 in, the, in a, again, a poetic style. And this verses 10 through 15 are bookended with references that remind us of David. In verse 10 he says, tell it not in Gath. Of course you know exactly what that means. Well, if you've studied tell it not in Gath, you'd figure it out. Otherwise you're like saying, what does that mean? In 2 Samuel chapter 1, we have a report coming to David. And you know the report was the death of Jonathan, his friend, and Saul the king. And he, he warns the one who comes, don't, don't go back and spread this news. Don't go back and spread this news. And here he, Micah uses that expression and says, God is coming in judgment. Don't go tell it. Don't go tell it in Gath. Don't tell the world. This is not the way it was supposed to be. At the end of this section, verse 15, it says, The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. I really I want to say, ah, oh, look at this. The, glo- the, the word glory should be capitalized. It's going to be the glory of God is going to come to Adullam. But that's, that's not what it means. I wish it did. Adullam was the place where when David was running from Saul, when Saul was trying to take his life, David hid himself in the caves in Adullam, and that's where his ragtag army came from. They went out to him. Those that, that had problems, they came out to him, and he led those 400 people. But it was in this fleeing. It's a very morbid section. Why? Why is it a morbid section? Because Israel has an incurable wound. Listen to how he expresses it. This is going to be on the screen behind me because rather than trying to go through and, and look at a cross-reference for each one of these, I just have a quote on the board that, that really touches how this is a very punny section. And it's not funny, but it is punny. Robert Chisholm writes, He urged the people of Beth Orphra, which could be taken to mean house of dust, to roll in the dust as an expression of their sorrow. The women of Shafir meaning beautiful, would be publicly exposed and humiliated, while the women of Za'anan, which sounds like the Hebrew word come out, would be trapped in their town and unable to come out. All Beth Ezel, meaning the house next door, could do was watch and weep. The expectations of Morath, a name that sounds like the Hebrew word mora, meaning bitter, their expectations would go unrealized. While those in Lachish needed to harness the team, the Hebrew word translated team resembles the name Lachish, to their chariots in preparation for battle. Lachish would say goodbye to Morasheth, Gath's citizens, much like a father who gives his daughter parting gifts at marriage. The name Morasheth sounds like the Hebrew word for betrothed, engaged, facilitating the portrayal of the city as a daughter ready to leave home. The town of Exib would prove deceptive. The word deceptive sounds like the name Exib to the kings of Judah. Morasheth, excuse me, Morasha 
would be invaded by a conqueror. The Hebrew word sounds like the name Morasha, forcing the glory of Israel, probably a reference to Judah's men of rank, to flee to Adullam for safety, just like David of old. In light of this coming tragedy, the prophet urges, urged the inhabitants of Morasha to lament over the exile of their children. What a scene. And again, I just want to use the word morbid. This just feels really heavy and sad and terrible. Israel's wound is incurable, verse 9. Judah's wound doesn't sound much better, does it? Doesn't sound much better. I wonder, I wonder about your wound. Is your wound incurable? I think by Micah's definition, he would say yes. Do you have a terminal wound? And again, by Micah's definition, I think he would say yes. Listen to how Jeremiah writes the same word, incurable, in Jeremiah 17.9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things. See it? And desperately or incurably sick or wicked. Who can understand it? Jeremiah is using the same word. And he's telling us the condition of mankind. Not some men, every man. Jeremiah 17.9 is about this guy right here. And it's about that guy and that girl right there. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and incurably wicked. This is God's diagnosis of every person. We all have an incurable disease. There is no medical remedy. There is no religious remedy. What do we do? Are you ready for a breath of fresh air? I think you need it, right? (laughs) Open the windows, please. I want to look at how God cures Israel's incurable disease. Will you look there with me, please? Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. While you're turning there, I'm going to read to you the statement of hope that Micah issues at the end of this oracle, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 2. Listen to what he says. Remember, he said, you have an incurable wound. At the end of the same oracle, he hasn't finished the message. Here's what he says. God is saying, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. And what he just told you, the incurable wound is solved by the one who breaks forth, and he is the Lord himself. Listen, friends, you might see all these morbid things, and there are morbid things, and there are reasons for morbid words, because we are incurably broken in and of ourselves. And when we manifest those incurably broken elements, oh, the horror that we bring forth. And God doesn't say, hey, that's all right. Hey, that's all right. Don't worry. I just love you. I just love wickedness. That's not how he deals with it. He deals with sin. He does. How does he deal with it? He deals with it by sending his son. Take a look here in Jeremiah 30. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jerusalem from the Lord, saying to the word that came to to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourselves all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold... 
the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them, I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Down at verse 7. Alas, for this day, that day is great, for there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be quiet. And no one, no one shall make him afraid, for I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I will make a full end of all nations which I have, where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. But I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your affliction is, what does it say? Incurable. Your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one for the multitude of your iniquities because your sins have increased. Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is, what does it say? Incurable. Because of the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured, and all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder, and all who prey upon you, I will make a prey. Listen carefully. Listen, please. For I will, I will, I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds says the Lord because they called you an outcast saying this is Zion no one seeks her what what is he saying here verse 18 thus says the Lord behold I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places the city shall be built upon his own mound and the palace shall remain according to its own plan we could read further we were getting the idea listen in Ezekiel 37 Ezekiel 37 You don't need to turn there. This vision, two sticks. One stick is the northern tribes. One stick is the southern tribes. Makes one stick out of the two. You know what it says in there? Under one king. You know who he is? Do you know his name? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. An incurable wound. Cured. Friends, only God can do that. Take a look at one more passage of scripture. Isaiah 53. Just as there is a remedy for Israel's incurable wound, there is a remedy for your and my incurable wound. And it's found in the same place. It's found in none other than Jesus Christ himself. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Will you read verse 5 with me? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes... Come on, you've got to do better than that. By his stripes, we are healed. What, what's going on? The incurable wound. I've got it. But that never limits. My God, because in his son... Something that is incurable. There's no such thing. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's broken. Probably a lot. I want to tell you, Jesus can cure the incurable. He always can cure the incurable. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Remember, I believe that Ryan read from Hebrews 10 to start, I'm not pleased with sacrifice and offerings. That's an interesting question. Interesting statement, isn't it? Didn't God prescribe the sacrifice and offerings? I'm not pleased with that. I don't want that. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him, Jesus, to grief. When you make his soul an offering for my sin. It doesn't say that. I think we can, we can without damaging the text... Insert my sin there. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The pleasure of the Lord. So I ask you again, do you have an incurable wound? I'd say you do. My follow-up question is, has Jesus done what's necessary to heal that wound? And I I can say yes, yes he has. Which follows up with, has he cured your incurable wound? Jesus' wounds cure incurable wounds. Never sit back and think, I'm too far gone. I've just messed up too much. God's sacrifice of Jesus, it's enough for that guy over there and that lady over there. He just never met me before. He just never met me before. I'm really bad. Micah would tell you something different. Jeremiah would tell you something different. The testimony of New Testament would tell you different. Jesus himself, the one who condemns, he would tell you different. Because the one who condemned is the one who died. That he might bear your sin and take away your reproach forever.